So what, uh, what does the sunrise mean? That sounds like a very poetic question, doesn't it? What, is this, what does the sunrise mean? If you're a real sciencey person, you're, you're saying, well, because the earth is spinning on its, at, its axis as we go around the sun. That's what, that's what sunrise means. Maybe for you, sunrise is just that wonderful, beautiful time of the day. You get up, you pour your coffee, you look out on the golden fields of Kansas, and you're just happy and joyful for all the promise of the day ahead. Or, or you're a working stiff and you're thinking, not again, not another day. Why is this the same time that people end up facing firing squads? It's always at sunrise, right? So sunrise, I mean, it can, it can mean a lot of different things to different people. What does the resurrection of Jesus mean? What does the resurrection of Jesus mean? We're going to be looking at that a little bit today. At sunrise on the third day, he rose from the grave. It was the most powerful event I would say, in all the universe for all time. If, if, if you just had to singularly... Now, it wasn't loud. It, it wasn't like the, the eruption of this volcano in, in Tongo or, or the dropping of the nuclear bomb or something like that. But just, in, just pound for pound, if, if you think about the energy of it in spiritual terms and how it utterly changed the, the face of the landscape spiritually for the whole universe, for all created beings. I mean, it's, it's an amazing, amazing moment. God raising Jesus from the dead powerfully declares the good news. That's what our, our text is uh, telling us today, I think, pretty clearly. Let's join back to the text, and let me give you the quick uh, reminder of where we are. We left Paul and Barnabas there in Pisidian Antioch, good old Pisidian Antioch. You remember, not the Syrian Antioch that they left, but the Pisidian Antioch, where, which is kind of where Galatia, uh, the region of Galatia is. When you get the letter to the Galatians, he's writing actually uh, to those very people. They went to the synagogue on the Sabbath, that would be Saturday. They went there and, uh, and, they, and they said to them, brothers, what, do you have any good word for us? Do you, can, you, can you give us a word of encouragement? And Paul's like, you absolutely better believe that I can uh, give you a, a good word. And he starts with all the goodness of God down through the ages, kind of funneling to the person of Jesus. And then he gives them three evidences of, of, of Jesus being the Messiah. He goes back to John the Baptist, he lays that out. He shows them the very odd, disturbing overreaction of the people of Jerusalem and their leaders, and then he hones in on the resurrection. And that's where we left off. We're at the resurrection. And from there he shows that the resurrection is the very reason for the good news. They're tied together. The resurrection and the good news are tied together. He says, and we bring you good news that what god promised to the fathers this he has fulfilled to us their children by raising jesus as it is also written in the second psalm you are my son today i have begotten you so what we're saying here is our message is the gospel the good news and that this good news is utterly and completely dependent upon the resurrection of jesus the resurrection of jesus is like the engine that powers the good news. First of all, his resurrection declares that the ancient promises are now fulfilled in Jesus. Let's read this again. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. Do you see the connection? Are you, are you, are you fitting this together okay? He's saying that all of the promises 
that God made to his Old Testament people, which were very much bundled up in the idea of that messianic figure that was going to come, of that Christ, the Son of God who's coming into the world, as we read during the worship time. Um, this, this was all focused in Christ and is proven by the raising of Jesus from the dead. When you think about the Civil War um, and the Emancipation Proclamation, you have something kind of uh, analogous. There's really very little that's analogous to the resurrection, but there's kind of an analogy here if you, if you think about this with me. Our country was sort of founded on slavery. At least slavery was inherently a huge part of the early couple hundred years of, uh, of America as we know it. And, and yet when you get to the founding of our nation, in those documents you had promises that were made which had to ultimately end up in all people being free. Would you agree with that? You think about the Declaration of the Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created, what? Equal, equal, and, and that they're endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights among which are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So that was sort of inherent in the founding of the country, but look at the years it took and the bloody war and the Emancipation Proclamation becomes that moment then when it's finally codified into law that all men truly are meant to be free. Like that, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead made possible all of the promises that God had given. And Paul's painting obviously with some broad strokes when he says this, but then he drills down and we get some very specific passages that he looks at. And these are all, or were all, considered to be messianic passages by the Jewish people. And I know the, the term messianic, I mean, for me, it's just, it, it rolls off the tongue. I think, of, think, but that's kind of a jargony word. How many know what messianic means? It means they were regarded as predictions of the Messiah. And the whole Old Testament is messianic in that sense, isn't it? But there are particular passages that are really inherently that sort of messianic, and, and they are Psalm 2, Isaiah 55, and Psalm 16. Those aren't the aren't the only ones, but they're the ones he mentions. It all kind of builds to a logical conclusion that I want you to see. I'm gonna take you through the logic of it, because if you just read it, it, it probably doesn't, doesn't exactly track right away. First of all, you have the promise to David. It says, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So Paul is showing there that the one that they're expecting, the Messiah, like David, will be regarded as the son of God. Now, was David the son of God? Not really. Not in, the, not in a literal sense. Today I've begotten you. It's, it, it was spoken to David, and it was sort of like, almost like an adoptive sense in which he would be this, considered the son of God. But what Paul is implying and suggesting is that looking ahead to the messianic person that would come, that, of that person, it would be said that he truly was the son of God. You tracking? Okay, so then you have Isaiah 55 quoted. He says, and, and, for, and as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken this way. Here's the quote from Isaiah. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. So he's saying this person that you should be looking for, the one who has come in Jesus, this, this person, not only is he regarded as the son of God, in, but this is all connected to the promises of David, to David. So that's the link. 
that, that what we can see here in the Psalms, spoken of David, is spoken of this son of David in an even greater way. And then he says that he will see no corruption. Does anybody know what corruption is when we speak of corruption? Isn't it funny that we, we know what it means, but we never use that term in in our normal day-to-day life. Like men, if you go out and you shoot a deer and you, uh, you have to leave it uh, lying there in the field and you go back and for some reason you have to leave it for a few days, do you say, man, that, that deer out there has seen corruption? You don't, we don't speak that way, do we? What do we say? It's rotting. It's rotting. It's, 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 it's bad. It's decaying. It, it, it smells. And of David, it was said that he would not see corruption. That he would not see corruption, and yet he did. Of Jesus, it can be said that he ultimately, utterly and totally fulfilled that. Look what it says in Psalm 16 then. Therefore, he says in another, play, in another psalm, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. What, what is that about? Did, I mean, David clearly saw corruption. What was, in the original context, the promise to David would have been something like, you are going to live a normal, full life. You're not going to die young, and you're not going to see corruption. That was probably how it would have been taken in its original context. But for the son of David, for the Messiah, it means something even more. Paul says, for David, after he had served the purpose of God, so he, he accomplished his purpose, he lived out his life to that extent, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep, was laid with his fathers, and saw corruption. His body decomposed. You put all these pieces together now. The Jewish people had promises. They had the expectation of a Messiah. This Messiah would be the son of David in one sense, the son of God, the son of David, and he's linked to all of the promises that are made originally to David, that he would be the son of God and that he would conquer death. Verse 37, but he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Do you see how how Jesus fulfills all of these, these promises and ultimately the proof and the power of that is in the resurrection itself? The resurrection puts that all together and ties it in a neat bow. A Davidic king had to come. He had to be the recipient of all these things. The empty tomb just, it's the exclamation point. It's the proof. Do you have the certainty today that Jesus is who he claims to be? Do you, as a believer in Christ, if you are indeed a believer in Christ, do you have that certainty that Jesus is truly the Son of David, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior, and that he is risen from the dead? I trust that you do. I trust that you do. The world is always trying to convince us that, uh, that we, we can't be sure of anything. I just saw a, uh, the other day on Facebook, I saw one of these old it's, it's, it's an old fable, it's an old, old saw that you've probably heard. I think I, the first time I heard it, I was in fourth grade, and our teacher taught, us to, taught it to us. Um, and it's the thing about the elephant, and uh, you know, you get the blind man and the elephant. How many have heard this fable? People love this fable. They're like, oh yeah, yeah, all religions, including Christianity, they would say, are like blind men trying to figure out who God is, and we're just groping around. We get a hold of a different part of the elephant, so we jump to different conclusions. So one blind man gets a hold of the tail. Oh, this thing's, whatever it is, it's like a snake. And, you know, one blind man is like, oh, he gets a hold of a, a leg. He's like, oh, whatever this is, it's like a tree. And you know, the other one's up pushing up against the body. Oh, it's like a wall. And they say, you see, we're supposed to believe by that that we can't know anything about God. 
because we're all just blind people groping and every religion's just doing its best. Here's the problem, as Kevin DeYoung points out. That fable works splendidly unless the elephant can talk. Because while that guy's down there going, I think it's like a snake, the elephant goes, hey, buddy, I'm an elephant. <laughs> no, 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 it's like a tree. I, <clears throat> I, what, what do you not understand? I'm telling you, I'm an elephant. And God has shown who he is. Ultimately, he has displayed it in Jesus Christ, who is the fulfillment of all that God has told us ahead of time and then punctuated that and proven that in that declaration of who Christ is through the power of his resurrection. Secondly, his resurrection declares that salvation is offered in Jesus. It says, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And that word therefore in that is linking it back to what has gone before. So the promise of forgiveness is linked to what we just talked about, which is the resurrection. So from that resurrection and the, and the fulfillment of those promises in Jesus, we get to this point where we see, okay, now because of that, we can proclaim forgiveness. Forgiveness of sin. Isn't that a great thing, forgiveness of sins? You know, I think, uh, unfortunately, a lot of times if you tell people in our culture today, hey, through Christ you can have the forgiveness of sins, they look at you and they go, well, whoop-dee-doo. Like, like, why do I care? It's because they, they do not understand, as they've been raised in, in, in our culture as it is and with all of the, the messaging that comes through Hollywood and other, other means, they don't have any real perception that this is a debt that they have before God. Now, how many have ever been forgiven of a, of a big debt at any point in your life? Anyone want to admit to that, that you've been forgiven of a big debt? My, uh, my son-in-law, I don't think he'll mind me telling you this, he is, uh, <laughs> he's not a deadbeat. I, I'll just say that now. He's not a deadbeat, but, but he went to uh, Notre Dame Law School, and uh, he had a family by that point, my, my daughter and, and, uh, and their child, and so they were just poor. And when you go to Notre Dame Law School, they, they tell you you are not allowed to work during law school. You, in the summers, when you're off, you can work all you want, but not during law school. So in other words, unless you're independently wealthy, you have to borrow it all. They, they borrowed north of 150 grand in order to go through law school. And then he became a JAG in the Air Force with the provision that if you, if you do 10 years in the, in the Air Force, there's a number of other ways you can serve and get the same effect, but if you do 10 years, it's forgiven. And I'm holding my breath the whole time. As dad, I'm like, oh, Lord, please let him get 10 years in. And just this year, just this year, he had his 10th year in, and he got the paperwork, and all of that gone. Can you imagine? Can you imagine the feeling of, of relief? The truth is, our sin before God is a great burden of debt that we are incapable of paying. God is worthy of all glory. God is worthy of our utter and total obedience. God is worthy of all of our love. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. That's a lot. Anybody falling short of that even now? Even after coming to Christ, you're still falling short on that one? What's wrong with you? 
<laughs> but that's the kind of debt we're talking about, that impossible, that we, you can't, you, there's no way. There's no way that you can live sinlessly. Paul could talk about being perfect according to the law in one sense. That is, as a Pharisee, when it came to outward obedience of rule-keeping, he was spot on. He was a good Pharisee. He knew of no sin that he could be you know, found guilty of. And yet Paul says, says elsewhere that when the commandment thou shalt not covet came, he died. What does he mean by it? He means that, that when you talk about the internal aspects, coveting happens in here, doesn't it? That he saw that and he knew. He knew he was a sinner. He knew that he fell short. Paul declares that ultimate forgiveness is available and it is proclaimed through the man Christ Jesus, the Messiah, and that having risen from the grave, we have the proof and the power of that offer. Couldn't be made otherwise. It says, and by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Paul is speaking here as a, as a good Jew, and he's speaking to Jews who love the law, and, and of course, why not? You, the, the, the law was lovable. It, it was good. Paul says that in the book of Romans. The law of God is good, but the, there are things the law of God can't do. It's weakened because of our sinfulness. The law of God cannot make you righteous. The law is really good at showing you where you're wrong. It's really, really good at that. Just in the same way that it can tell you that you're impure, ceremonially, you know, if you read the Old Testament, all those laws about ceremonial purity and you can't go out in polite society, and you can't go to the temple and worship if, if these things are true of you. Things like if, you're, if you've got a blood disorder where you're bleeding, uh, if you've touched a dead body, if you've got leprosy, you know the drill, right? The law was super good at saying, okay, that makes you unclean. That makes you unclean. And we got to the book of Luke, and you'll recall how many times was someone unclean and Jesus touched them. And the law says if you touch somebody that's unclean, Jesus, this woman's been bleeding for however many dozen years or so, and, and, and that makes you unclean if you touch her. If you touch a leper, you, his uncleanness comes on you. You're made unclean. If you touch a dead body, you're made unclean for a period of time. And they bring that young man through the streets, and they're taking him out, and Jesus reaches up and just touches the, the, the beer, B-I-E-R, not B-E-E-R, the beer, this funeral beer, and, uh, and instead of being made unclean, they're made clean. They're made whole. The law was incapable of doing that. The law was just very good at saying, hey, you crossed the line. You have, you have transgressed. The law of Moses was good at describing sin, but Paul says the law, what the law couldn't do, the resurrection of Jesus Christ and now faith in him is capable of freeing us from and that means he frees us from the guilt of the sin. He frees us from the penalty of sin. The word, the second word that freed is in there twice, but the second time it's used, it means justified. So not only have we been forgiven, not only has that sin debt been taken away, but we've even been declared righteous. The righteousness of Christ has been given to us through Christ, through faith in him, through the power of the resurrection. You and I should be joyful 
when we really stop and consider the resurrection of Jesus from the grave because that is why we are cleansed. That is why we are free. We can even speak of freedom in another sense, and that is that having come to faith in Christ, receiving his Holy Spirit, as we live our lives, we have been freed from the tyranny of sin. Sin no longer is a slave master. Those chains have have been broken. We, we, We are free to serve another. We are free to serve the Lord. The empty tomb declares that to our hearts. You know, and I know as a believer, it is very hard to lose focus on that during the week. You know, when we talked about what every new day means, how many wake up sometimes with a pit in your stomach when you think about all you got to do that day? Anyone? Just pastors? Oh, okay, there's a few more. <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, like, so, <laughs> just this week, there was one day I got up and the sun hadn't even shone yet, and I opened up my email and I was like, ugh, no, this isn't going to be a good day or week or year, maybe at the rate I'm going. But, uh, you know, and, and, it's, and you, when you're living your life in, in the just good old here and now, sometimes it's just the, the cross and the empty tomb feel so very far away. And that's, that's Satan tempting us to, to just despair like the, like the song talks about. But when you are in that position, when you are tempted to feel crushed by the weight of your sin and and knowing how I still fall so, so far short, how can this be? We, we need to remember what the empty tomb means, the power of Christ's resurrection. If, if he were still in the grave, we would be still in our sin, but because he is raised, we have been freed and we have been justified through Jesus Christ. And lastly, his resurrection declares all must believe in Jesus. We saw that in verse 39 where it says everyone who believes is freed. And then immediately it starts talking about the flip side of that, and that is unbelief. He says, beware therefore lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your day, a work that will, you will not believe even, uh, even if one tells it to you. Bottom line there, scoffers going to scoff is kind of uh, what, it's, what it's saying there. Um, what is it to scoff? It's to look down on, on somebody else's uh, truth, somebody else's beliefs, and despise and, and be derisive of, of that person. Paul is quoting here from a time in Israel's history. Habakkuk is the one that wrote those words. It was shortly before the Babylonian captivity. You remember the Babylonian captivity? It was a bad deal. Babylon came and took Judah and all the people, and they destroyed Jerusalem. They took them into captivity, all but the poorest in the land. And, and the prophet Habakkuk there is saying, look, scoffers, because what were the scoffers scoffing about? They're like, eh, you're telling me all this doom and gloom. Oh, judgment's coming, you know, and I haven't seen any judgment yet. I think everything's just fine, and you need to just, you know, mind your own business. And they'd scoff all day long, and Habakkuk's like, no, no, if you understand, if you knew what was coming, you, you, you would not scoff. Think of how close that came to the situation of the Jewish people when Paul is preaching this. He's just talked about how the people of Jerusalem rejected Christ, handed him over to be killed. We know historically that within one generation, and Jesus predicted it, within one generation, the Romans would come in and do worse to Jerusalem than the Babylonians did. The carnage was going to be horrific. 
And I think Paul is saying to the people there at Pisidian Antioch, don't be like the people of Jerusalem. Don't be like the scoffers in the days of Habakkuk. Don't be like the scoffers in Jerusalem. See what's going on. There is a judgment of God that is coming, but believe. Don't be caught in that unbelief. Paul's saying there's a historical precedent. It's happened before. It will happen again. Don't let that be you. But scoffing is a very attractive position. Do you know that your IQ goes up if you're a scoffer? That's what people assume. Have you ever noticed that? Like people on Facebook or wherever. People love to scoff. They love to be the skeptic. They love to trash other people's sincere faith. You think about somebody like a Bill Maher, and he's so good at it. It, you know who I'm talking about, Bill Maher? I mean, just, he just looks down his nose and ridicules people of faith. And, and it, it just, I don't know if Bill Maher's a smart guy or if he's just really good at scoffing, but it makes you somehow look just like you're somehow more intelligent or something. Here's the problem that Habakkuk speaks to there. Scoffing does not make you right. It just makes you look smart in your own eyes and in the eyes of certain other people. But you can scoff and be completely, totally wrong, and because of it, you may end up perishing. Let me give you a a real-life example. I saw a video recently, and and I did not know this little bit of history. We all know, of course, about Hiroshima and Nagasaki and the dropping of of the atomic bombs there, and a horrific, horrific thing. Leading up to that, um, we had given the Japanese terms of surrender, and they were unconditional. In the meantime, what happened, as the bomb was being developed, they were intercepting, and and they had broken the Japanese code, and they were reading the communiques, and what they came to realize was that the Japanese were never going to surrender under those conditions. They came to realize, because of the emperor and the importance of the emperor, they could never ever expect that to happen. They would die, every last one of them, um, before, before that would be over, if they required the emperor to step down. So, right before they dropped the bomb, they changed the terms, and they sent a, a communique then to, to the Japanese and said, okay, uh, we're about to annihilate you. I, and I don't know if they specifically mentioned the bomb, but basically we had already been bombing the smithereens out, out of them, and so it was like, we're gonna completely annihilate you Um, Or you can surrender, but they changed the terms of surrender to allow the idea that the emperor could remain. And this gets to the scoffing thing. What happened was the generals of the Japanese went to the emperor and said, the Americans are weakening. Look, they've changed the terms of surrender. That's proof that they don't have the stomach for this war and that they're going to back off. They scoffed. They thought they understood how things were and they convinced the emperor that they needed to hold the course. And of course, you know the rest of the story. And it's, and it's absolutely tragic. And I would say to you today, if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ and, and that, you know, that, that smug position of mocking, it seems so smart and it just seems like, like, like you made me feel better because you can look down. I just urge you not to do that. I urge you not to scoff just for scoffing's sake. If you miss the truth of this, a greater tragedy than what happened to Japan will happen to you because it's not just death. When the Bible talks about perishing, 
It's not just talking about dying. It's talking about dying without hope in God, without Christ, and to go into a Christless eternity with the wrath of God and that sin debt still remaining. And you don't want to be there. You don't want that to be true of you. Of you. And how can I be so sure of this? How can I tell you this and, and, and be confident of it? It's because Christ is risen from the grave. Because of that. Well, when Paul and Barnabas left the synagogue that day, it says, as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. These listeners that heard the good news, that didn't scoff, they rejoiced. They, they, they were just, they were passionate. They wanted to hear that. They soaked it up like sponges. That word of encouragement truly encouraged them. And then they're like, we want more. We want more. Tell us more. <laughs> and, um, and this passage ends with, with Paul and Barnabas encouraging them to remain and continue in the grace of God. And I love that. If you have come to faith in Christ, if you, if you believe in him, if you believe that God raised him from the dead, you, you're saved, and you, and you probably know that. But the, the temptation, of course, is having been saved by faith, we think then, we get tempted to think, well, now I have to finish it with my own hard work. Like, Christ gets me to the salvation point, but from there on, I'm on my own. <laughs> no. No, we, we begin by grace. We have to finish in grace. And what Paul and Barnabas were saying to them is that's the, that's the picture of the Christian life. We, we come to God through the grace that is in Jesus Christ by the power of that empty tomb, of, by the power of that resurrection. And having come to him and been saved by faith, we then walk in him in that grace. You need it, brother. You need it. You can't, you can't live this life. You, what, is, what does sunrise mean if you don't have the grace of God to get you through the day? It's not enough to just know that, you, that, that you've been saved. You need the grace of God for every sunrise and every sunset until he takes you home. That's what the resurrection of Jesus Christ brings to us. It's that grace, and we need to continue in it. Let's pray. Father, we know that it is a good word, a, a good news that, that has been proclaimed to us, that there is grace, there is forgiveness that's proclaimed to us because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that you fulfilled every promise that, that you had made of one that would come greater even than David, a savior, a son of God, and, and that this person is, is Christ Thank you that you've declared it, that you've made it clear. Thank you that we're not just blind men groping around and trying to make sense, but Lord, you, you spoke it and you declared it and you proved it by the empty tomb. And encourage our hearts in grace today, Lord. Help us to, to live every day in the power of that grace, not counting in our own good works, not, not counting in our own strength, Lord, because we would quickly fail, but, but looking to and drawing strength from from that grace and from all that is in Christ and Lord we do pray that that if there's someone that hears this that's not a believer that he or she would not scoff that that they would be sober 
and look at this and, and look at the evidence and see the, the empty tomb, see the risen Christ and be drawn to faith in him today. We ask, Lord, for you to do this by your power. In Jesus' name, amen.